Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast with your host, David McIntosh. As you know, my podcasts are usually upbeat, hopeful, inspiring and motivating, but sadly not this one. And that's because I spent 90 minutes with a high school shooter. And it was extremely difficult to contend with and even comprehend. This week, my guest is John Romano. At the age of 16, John was sentenced to 17 years in prison for attempted murder, assault and 82 cases of reckless endangerment after taking a gun into Columbia High School in New York in 2004. Now John works with official authorities and uses social media to share his story, his experience and his preventative advice so history doesn't repeat itself. And in the last year, John was attacked by a service user of the homeless shelter he was working at. He endured sword wounds, close amputation of the extremities and almost lost his life. John has been both the perpetrator and victim of the most heinous and excusable grave intentions imaginable. But thankfully no one has lost their lives in these events. However, I think deeply in question John heavily about the psychological lacerations his actions left on those classmates in Columbia High School. So in this episode, I'm not my chirpy self. I use this opportunity to learn about childhood trauma, depression and ultimately the intentions that led to the highest and most inexcusable level of crime. This episode is both emotional and emotionless. I look forward for you guys tuning into this one, but I understand if many of you don't make it past this point. My line of questioning and John's responses are not promotive of gun violence or his actions, but I pride myself in finding and sharing the world's most unique stories. I really hope this episode is preventative, interceptive and raises awareness. John's word is, I was once the problem, I'm now part of the solution. I really hope this becomes true. As the listener, I want you to bear in mind that this is John's perspective of the events, not the perspective of the witnesses or the victims that were involved. So please, 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 please keep that in mind throughout this episode. Since John's presence has blown up on social media over the last couple of weeks, reaching over 250,000 across platforms, different accounts and different perspectives have been shared. So please do your own research too. I'm really appreciative that you are tuning into this one. It's hard to contend with. I struggled myself. I want none of you to repeat the actions of John, but I do think all stories have lessons within, even the most tragic ones such as this. And that's why I was so keen to get inside the mind of John Romano. Please let me know what you think of this episode. Please let me know if you want me to do more of these more tragic tales. But I also understand why you may not want me to platform someone such as John. However, if this was a true crime podcast or a true crime documentary, most of you would listen into this story. John's story unfortunately did happen and there's no freeing away from it. I just think it's important to learn from it. So reach out with some comments. Listener discretion is advised. But now, my guest, John Romano. Can I ask you what your childhood upbringing and environment looked like before that date? Yeah. So, and again, when I talk about my childhood, I'm, I'm never trying to make excuses for what I did. I'm not trying to blame others. I'm not trying to, um, you know, belittle anybody. Um, I'm just talking about the pieces of the puzzle that came together uh, in my life. Um, so, yeah, I, I came from what appeared to be a good family in the beginning. Uh, both of my parents had kids from previous marriages. I was the only kid that they had together. 
And, you know, right around the time I was turning four, my father left. Um, and he didn't want anything to do with me, really, originally. Um, he didn't want visitation rights. He didn't want any of that. He just moved out, took uh, my half-brother, who, again, he had had from a previous marriage, and left. And in my, my mom's household, she was warm. She was compassionate. And my brother and my sister, uh, who she had had from previous marriages, they were five and about 10 years older than I am. So there's a bit of an age gap, but the household was, was a good house. You know, it was a good place to grow up in. But when my dad did start to ask for visitation rights, my mom gave it to him. And I started to go and see him uh, every other weekend, usually, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, my half-brother living at his place was abusive sexually um, when I was five, six, seven years old. And uh, yeah, I, I talk about that now only because I never spoke about it for years. It wasn't until I was already in prison and had already spread pain to others that I finally spoke about it only because I saw another man who was strong enough to speak about his own abuse. And I saw that it didn't take away from him. And I was able to follow his lead and to open up about it myself. So when I speak about that, it's because I think it's more common than we realize, especially in boys and men where it's not talked about. And I hope that others can feel comfortable to know that you're not alone if it's happened to you and that you can talk about it too. Um, but yeah, so I mean, from the outside looking in though, when I'm a kid, I'm playing little league. I'm trying out soccer and, you know, different sports. Uh, I really stuck with baseball. I loved it, but, uh, things seemed to be going well, even though behind closed doors, this horror was going on as well. And when the abuse actually stopped, I can tell you that the person who had done it to me, who had groomed me into doing this had told me that it's what people do when they love each other. And so I believed that because I didn't know what it was. And when it stopped, I believed that I had done something wrong, that he no longer loved me. And that's a common thing that I've heard from other survivors of, of sexual abuse, especially at such a young age. So again, it's just this ongoing feeling of, I have done something wrong. First, my father leaves now, you know, this person who is abusing me, you know, my, my brother, he's, he's no longer wanting to, not only did the abuse stop, but then he pretty much wanted to, to move on with his life and not acknowledge what he had done and prevent, prevent, excuse me, pretend that I didn't even exist. And yeah, so I think when I became older, uh, this became more problematic. And I think that I was probably suffering just from a chemical balance as well, but my depression and everything became worse when I was 13, 14 years old. And I started to slip. I started to go from a A and B students doing well in school, uh, somebody who's playing sports, to suddenly I no longer want to play sports. And my grades were slipping. And although I was still f having friends and girlfriends and things appeared to be going well, Internally, I was falling apart and I started to really feel a sense of emptiness. 
I tell people that, you know, sometimes we think, oh, well, if this was going better or that was going better in my life, everything would be great. But I remember there were points in my life where our high school was, I was not doing great, but I was doing okay. I had friends, I had a girlfriend, and I remember specifically everybody's over at my house and we're hanging out, we're having a great time and I'm sitting there in a room full of friends and my girlfriend and everybody who cared about me and we're having this good time, but still I felt empty on the inside, you know? And I I did. At what point did you recognize that as a symptom of depression? When did you initially feel that I'm not like the others that are around me? I'm not feeling the same way that they do on a day-to-day basis. So when I was 14, I really think I started to notice that something was off, but I continued to just try to push through, you know, to be tough, to, okay, whatever, suck it up, you know, but it was when I was, I just turned 15 where I couldn't do it anymore and I was suicidal and I wanted to change. I wanted to be quote unquote, normal, like everybody else. I wanted to be happy like everybody else. And I believed that I was alone in my suffering, you know? So I was in school one day and I called to my mom and I said, listen, something's wrong. I need help. I I can't, I can't even make it through the next period, let alone the next day. I, I need help. And, uh, thankfully she was, a compassionate person who saw that something was wrong. She had suspected that I was slipping. She thought maybe it was just, you know, most teenagers go through a struggle, but she took me to see my doctor and my doctor asked me, you know, have you ever thought about hurting yourself? Have you ever thought about ending your own life? And I said, yeah, for the first time I admitted out loud. Yeah. Sometimes I I wish I was dead. And so I started to get medication started to get therapy and I was still though, you know, for, for a while I I was struggling and I was cutting myself and I was hiding the cuts and I was trying to hide the pain from everybody. But eventually the, the physical scars that I started to have were seen. And one of my teachers you know, called my mom and my mom basically knew that despite the therapy, I was still in severe trauma. I was still in severe pain internally. And I, uh, she asked if I, I would be willing to go into a mental hospital to get some more intensive care and therapy. And I said, yeah. So I went, um, And that's when I started to have some problems actually with my school. Um, Again, I'm I'm never making excuses or blaming anything on them, but I started to get upset with them because even when I was in the mental hospital and, you know, they would say, okay, you're a minor, you know, we have to have um, you attending school within the mental hospital you know, we'll reach out to your high school, we'll have them send some work in so you can keep up with your classes and we can, you know, keep you focused on your school work for a little while while you're in here as well. My high school refused to send anything. They, they never, you know, I was only there for a week, but they, they refused to send any of my classwork or assignments. And I remember the people at the hospital being like, we've, we've never seen this before. 
you know, we, we interact with all these schools and, you know, everybody else I'm in there uh, with a bunch of other kids who are, you know, similar age and they're all busy doing schoolwork. And they basically told me like, you know, all right, just read a book or something. Uh, and I started to be like, what the fuck? You know, like, why, why aren't they willing to send me anything? And when I got out of the, the hospital and I was trying to go back to school and now we were realizing like, okay, I need some extra help. I need things to be different. And in the States, we have what they call an IEP, an individual education plan uh, that's available to students who may have behavioral uh, problems, psychological problems, or learning disabilities like dyslexia, ADHD, things of that nature, where they, they need some extra assistance or they, they need their education plan to look differently than maybe others. Um, so I asked for it and my mom asked for it from my school and they said no. And they, they refused to do that for me. And again, I started to think, why, why aren't they trying to help me? Like, here I am trying to do the right thing trying to get my life on track to be normal. And I felt like they were just turning me away. Did you feel somewhat of a victim to that system? Did you, did that experience reiterate to you and re-solidify that you were an outcast because they ostracized you from the support that you needed and further to that, everyone else around you too? Yeah, definitely. Um, because it's kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm doing the right thing and asking for help, right? And here I am basically being told like, no, we don't want to help you. You're, you're not as bad off as you might think you are. Despite my psychiatrist and everybody sending letters to the school saying like, no, this kid is clinically depressed, has some psychological issues and needs help even in the school. And when they said no, yeah, I felt rejected and I felt that, yeah, I was being alienated and that they were basically saying like they didn't care about me. Did that manifest itself into thoughts or ideations of hurting other people around you or psychologically traumatizing others around you? Yeah, so I was definitely uh, very upset, specifically with like some of the administration, um, because I did eventually get the um, the assistance I needed from the school. Only after my family hired an attorney and had meetings and threatened lawsuits and publicity, did the school finally help me out. But now here they are helping me out in May. When the school year is practically over and I had failed almost all of my classes and was feeling like, you know what, fuck it, you know, I'm, I'm not like everybody else. And I did start to, instead of saying like, okay, what can I do to buckle down and like work even harder to get my life back on track? What are some other avenues that I can do? No, I said, I, I really think that these people are the problem here you know it wasn't so much that I was the problem it was they are the problem um and I I um I really did start to uh struggle with dealing with the administration that I felt was um harmful not just to me but then I started thinking like why are they doing this why are they like this you know, not with just me, but in what other ways are they neglecting people and hurting people? Um, 
So I, I wouldn't say that I started to really fantasize about like, uh, you know, killing them or hurting or, or anything like that. But there definitely was now my suicidal tendency. Sometimes I thought about, well, what if I just killed myself in front of others? You know, um, what if my pain became their pain? What if in my last act on this earth, I forced them to see me, I forced them to hear me, and I forced them to be in the circle of pain that I was. And, um, you know, so I had had these thoughts at times, but I thought that was just dark moments. And I did start to really try to struggle to, um, okay, well, what else can I do? You know, how else can I get help? And in the following year at school, I turned 16 and I thought about dropping out. And I was told basically like, no, you, you turned 16 after the school year started, you can't drop out. And I basically said, well, fuck you, I'm not coming back anyways. And my mom looked into the fact that I was able to go to a local community college. Um, and I was able to sign up for what they call continuing education, where I would be able to take college courses and I'd be working towards my GED, which is basically an equivalent to a high school diploma. Um, but I would also be doing that while taking college courses while um, earning credits towards a college degree. And so I was like, all right, I'll do that. And so in June of 2004, um, that's what I started doing. I had basically left my high school behind and I started to attend college um, to work on getting my, my high school equivalency degree while also starting college courses. And I thought like, all right, now I do have a future. I, I started to believe in myself. I started to have faith that everything would turn out okay, that I still struggled. I was still on and off medications at the time. Um, I had come off of most of my meds, you know, because that was another issue where I went from antidepressants, you know, in the beginning to help with the suicidal thoughts to, well, the antidepressants also made me a little bit more anxious. So they started putting me on, you know, some medication for anxiety. And then as well as that, then I started to struggle sleeping. And so they put me on medication for sleep. And then when I was in the mental hospital, they put me on another medication that basically was a tranquilizer. You know, it's a it's an antipsychotic, but reality is I didn't need to be on it, but they gave it to a lot of people to basically tranquilize you and to make you more sedative. So I'm on this cocktail of medication that I eventually get off and I am feeling better, but I'm still struggling as well. And I tell people one of the things that I regret leading up to the shooting is the fact that I was never fully open. I was never truly honest, not only with the people around me, but even in therapy, I never talked about, yeah, I might be doing a little bit better now, but I'm still struggling with you know, thoughts of suicide or I can't sleep at night. And I'm just, I did have those moments where I just didn't believe that my life was worth it. Um, but then it was kind of like, you know, that would happen for part of a day or late at night. And then I would feel better the next day. 
and I wouldn't want to talk about it. I wouldn't want to admit to my therapist, yeah, I, I am moving forward, but I am still having these issues. So, um, so what was the pathway from that moment to giving a 16-year-old depressed young teenager a firearm, especially one as capable as a shotgun? Right. So that happened. Yeah. So then as things seem to be doing better for me on the outside for people, my my brother, who had actually been the abusive one when I was little, he had joined the military and he had been after um, 9-11. He had gone and he was in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but when in 2003 he was coming home, he was finishing up. Uh, his his duty in the military, he was talking to me about, hey, you know, we should hang out, we should go hunting and, and you know, and do all this stuff together. And um, so, yeah, in the beginning of 2004, when I brought this up to my mother, she was against it. But I brought it up to my therapist and my psychiatrist. And they told my mother that you have your son back. He's doing better. He's not a threat to himself. He's not a threat to others. You know, because again, though, I, I wasn't opening up all the way to my therapist. So I'm not mad at them for saying it. But yeah, my, my mother basically heard that from them and said, all right. You know, she even spoke to the local police department about, hey, is there anything I should know about having a, a shotgun or a rifle or anything like that in my house with my son? And they basically said, just keep it locked up, you know. And so there was a, a local gun store that was going out of business. And my mom said, hey, they're they're having a sale. Why not take advantage of it? And my mom had done some uh, some shooting with shotguns, you know, when she was younger. And so she said, hey, uh, what if I get a shotgun? I'll be able to use it for, you know, skeet shooting and target shooting and, you know, self-defense at home, you know, God forbid she needs it. And she was saying, I could use it when I go hunting with my brother. So it sounded great. And when we went to the gun store, that's all I was thinking about. And this happened two days before the shooting. Um, because Saturday, when we get the gun, and that's all I'm thinking about. But then some of my other friends, some of my other family, they start to share with me how scared they are, how concerned they are, because they're worried about me. You know, they love me and they're afraid that I might hurt myself or kill myself. And my mind starts to distort their love and starts to say to myself, like, oh, they don't they don't trust me. They don't believe in me. They don't see me like they see everybody else. I'm still that kid that's being cast off to the side where people just don't, you know, believe in me. I'm not normal. I'm not like everybody else. Uh, my future that I dreamed of will never happen because people aren't going to take a chance on me. Look, they don't even trust me now after all the work I'm doing. I mean, in reality, I wasn't doing as much work as I should have been doing, but this is what I was telling myself. And so Saturday, I'm literally out with friends. We're having a great time. And yeah, I brought up the fact of like, hey, my mom got this gun, you know, like I'm showing pictures and I'm kind of like, yeah, like, but they're concerned about me and their love gets distorted in my mind. And Sunday morning, I wake up in a downward spiral of depression, of self-hatred and of anger, of believing my life has never been amount to anything and I want to die, you know, 
so so yeah, I I started to think I, I don't want to kill myself at home. I don't want my mom to find me. And I also don't want to be forgotten. So I started to think about, you know what? It's it's the people at school. It's their fault. They're the reason why my life hasn't, you know, turned out the way it should be. They're the reason why, you know, I'm not getting the help that I need. It's their fault. That's what I kept telling myself. And so I decided that I would, I would show up the next day and I would traumatize, terrorize, and eventually die in front of other people. So on that day, I would imagine that you wrote a suicide note and a plan of action for what the Monday looked like at school. How did the next day unfold? Yeah, so I'd actually started writing the suicide note the, the night before, Sunday nights, and um, I was, it basically just became kind of a, a little bit of a goodbye, specific messages for specific people, but there was also me kind of like ranting about how I wished I was normal. I felt that I was, there was something wrong with me, and yeah, I, I blamed other people in the note, but I, I wanted people to know that I wished things were different, you know, um, that I was basically trying to say, like, I'm sorry for what I'm doing, but I, I just didn't see any other way. And, um, you know, um, I thought it would be clear what I was going to do because I didn't believe that I would be stopped in the way that I was stopped. Um, because basically what happened Monday morning is, I, although I woke up and I was, part of me was trying to stop myself. Uh, I just kind of went on autopilot, you know, and I, um, I, I drove myself into the school. I showed up a bit late, so I know that I wouldn't be dealing with a whole bunch of people as I'm walking in. And sure enough, I threw on a backpack. I had the shotgun in its case, which I knew, you know, it's just kind of this black case that might look like an instrument case. And I, I just walked into the school and literally nobody was there as I walked through the front door. Um, but I didn't have a plan. I didn't really have like uh, anything set out for what I was going to do. All I knew was basically I just wanted to um, to cause a scene, uh, to have force people to see me, to force people to share in my pain. And I basically figured either I'm finally going to be able to pull the trigger on myself or the police are going to show up and they're going to kill me, you know. Did you have any specific people that you had in mind that you wanted to witness this? Or was it just the school population in general? I think it was just kind of the school population because I knew no matter what that the school as a whole, the community as a whole would feel it, you know. Um, I did... So what happened was when I went into the school and nobody saw me and, you know, I just kind of went up into the, the second floor bathroom and I take the gun out of its case and I'm sitting there. And part of me is also trying to stop myself, which is why I always tell people it's never too late to stop yourself, you know, because there was a part of me that wanted to leave, but I was afraid and I felt that I was at the point of no return. But I tell people it's, it's never too late. So uh, it's never too late. But um but yeah, I, I had even tried calling, you know, one or two friends. I had sent a text message just trying to connect with people. 
But eventually I was like, fuck it. Like, I got to go through with this. You know, like if I leave and somehow make it home without getting caught, what? My life is still going to be meaningless. It's still going to be pointless. I'm not going to have a future of any significance, you know. And before I left the bathroom, I sent out a text message to a couple of my friends just saying, like, I'm in school with a gun. Get out. And that was I didn't want them to see me. I didn't want their last memory to be of me with a gun. I didn't want them to share in as much pain as anybody who did see me. I didn't want them to be as traumatized as everybody else. That was my mindset at that time. Um, But yeah, so not to go too in depth into the horrors of that day, but I take the shotgun out. I've got it loaded up with birdshot, you know, which I knew was, was... less likely, you know, it's not going to hurt people at a distance, you know, if somebody accidentally gets hit. Um, But it's definitely going to, you know, to scare the shit out of everybody when I start firing and to, to, to cause the police to show up and to, you know, I'm thinking like the police show up, I'll fire off rounds, you know, basically into the ceiling and and they'll, they'll kill me. I know they'll fucking kill me. Um, But when I start coming out of the bathroom, you know, I, I waited for the next class to start and, you know, people had come in the bathroom not knowing I was in the stall and I wait for everything to clear out. I wait for the hallway to clear out. I wait for the next class to start and I start coming out of the bathroom when this other kid, he starts to try to come into the bathroom and he just basically sees me and he freezes up and he turns around and runs away. And I, I didn't fire at him. You know, even though he was just two or three feet in front of me, that's why I tell people, like, my goal was not to shoot people that day. Um, But when I come out and I come around the corner and I see two other students and they're down the hall, they just come around the other end, the other corner, and they're kind of coming, you know, at the left. And I point the gun up and to the right and I fire. And, you know, now... Now they're, they're running for their lives. They disappear real quick and I fire again. And now it's definitely on. Now I, it's just a moment of time before I'm dead in my mind. And so and at that moment, won't... no one was shot. No, at that moment, nobody had been shot. Um, like I said, I, I shot up and away from them. Um, you know, the bird shot ended up going mostly up into the ceiling uh, some of it hit some of the upper parts of the wall um, away from them. But so I'm I'm now I'm just kind of like, all right, let me I'm walking down the hall and I'm just kind of on autopilot. Like there's no real thought of exactly what I'm going to do, but I figure it's just a moment of uh, waiting. And so I'm walking down the hall and out of the corner of my eye, I see one of the classroom doors is wide open. You know, the others had been closed and I just see this door wide open and I go and I just stand in the doorway. And, uh, you know, everybody's there on the ground, hiding behind their desks from me. And the teacher, she's at the front of the class. Underneath, she had like a table set up next to her desk. And I see her underneath the table. And, you know, and she cries out, oh, Lord. You know, with absolute terror and fear in her eyes. And... And, um, you know, I see this, one of the students, she pops her head up above her desk and she's one of the people that I was just hanging out with Saturday night, 
you know, she wasn't really, she was more of a friend of a friend, but she's got this look of terror and confusion and fear. And, you know, I, I just kind of turned around and I walked out and I think again, I just wanted, you know, I, I, I wanted them to feel my pain. I wanted them to see something that they would never unsee. And uh, yeah, so I turn around and I walk out and I'm walking down the hall um, when the vice principal uh, who came to investigate the sounds, you know, he, nobody thinks that it's gunshots. They're thinking like, all right, there's, there's some construction going on in parts of the school. Maybe something fell, maybe something happened. Maybe somebody's setting off firecrackers and, and he comes to investigate and he sees me walking away from him down the hall and he comes up and he grabs, reaches around, grabbing at the gun, grabbing at the stock, grabbing at the barrel. And then like, I start trying to like push away. I'm pushing the gun and I'm trying to like shake him off my back. And I don't know that there's a teacher coming up behind us to help. And I'm shaking this guy off my back when the gun goes off because my finger is on the trigger. And now I don't even know that I just shot this teacher in the leg. Um, but I'm still struggling with this guy to get control of the gun. When after a while, I finally, I let go of the gun and I say, fine, like I give up. And, you know, that was it. Like he basically just takes me, you know, takes the gun and puts me in an office and we wait for the police to come. And, you know, I, I don't know, like I had done exactly what I'd intended to do, except for being killed. What was I going spread, through your mind at that moment, John? I mean, at that moment, I, I just knew, you know, I, I, I knew how much pain I had just spread. I wasn't connected to it, but I didn't really feel anything. No, I no really signs of regret at that moment? At that moment, like, it was just, I remember hearing them talk about, you know, people were saying, is everybody okay? Is every is anybody hurt? And I remember somebody saying that, no, this, this teacher had been hit. And I remember thinking like, it didn't connect with me that I had shot somebody because I didn't, I didn't realize that somebody had been shot. And it didn't even connect with me because I remember later on in the day when I was in, you know, I'm coming out of court, you know, after facing a judge that night, and I remember the news, you know, the press is there and they're asking, why did you shoot him? Why did you shoot him? And I remember almost saying out loud, I didn't shoot anybody. Because even after hearing people talking about it, like it didn't connect with me. So much of what I did didn't connect with me. Like I knew that I'd caused a lot of pain, but I didn't really connect with just how much trauma I had caused upon other people. And it would be a while before I really connected with what I had done before I really started to feel that, that pain that I had spread upon so many people. And, you know, I eventually, I, the police interrogated me, you know, and I answered questions. I, I ended up, I, they wrote a statement on my behalf that I, I signed without reading, um, you know, and so people start being like, he wanted to kill everybody. He wanted to kill everybody. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I mean, when I was in jail, I just didn't care. I, I didn't care to fight 
and to try to get, no, this is my story. This is what happened. I, I didn't care. I'd caused, I knew I'd caused pain and I didn't want to go to trial. I didn't want to re-traumatize people. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to face what I'd done either. You know, like I was facing the consequences, but I didn't want to see the people that I'd hurt. I didn't want to hear them speak also. Um, I mean, they were given that opportunity when I was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but I just wanted to disappear, you know? So I pled guilty to uh, three, t three counts of attempted murder, six counts of reckless endangerment, which means that I had been so reckless that I, I could have injured other people. And yeah, I went to prison. You know, I spent 17 years behind bars uh, for what I had done that day. John, at what moment did your, your mom find out that you had just committed this act of attempted murder? Yeah, um, so uh, my mom found out the way that so many other parents found out. Um, you know, she... She was at work when suddenly, you know, there's a, a news break on the radio, on TV, and everybody starts talking and everybody starts calling each other. And my mom, you know, uh, finds out about it. Um, and yeah, so I, I didn't talk to her until I think either late that night when I was in jail um, there was an officer who, who let me call her. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> my mom was never one for physical uh, punishment or, or, or harm. Um, but when she saw me the next day in jail and there was plexiglass, um, you know, separating us, uh, she, she told me, she said, you know, I want to hug you, but I, I want to hit you. <laughs> and I, um, I'm very blessed, though, that she was willing to be open and to talk to me and to hear my side of the story. And so was my family and even some of my friends later on. But even in the immediate aftermath, my mom was, OK, we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll, we'll figure this out. And even when I was in prison, um, serving a 20-year sentence, when I gave up hope, when I didn't believe in myself, when I still, especially as the guilt, the shame, the remorse really starts to hit me, and I believe that my life will never have any meaning or purpose because of this horrible thing that I've done, because of all the pain and suffering I've now, you know, caused so many other people, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe that I had a life worth living, but she did, you know, she and others did. And it was that compassion that helped transform me. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't even happen quickly. It took me years of being in prison before I started to believe that, you know what, I, I can still make something of my life. And even, even people in prison, you know, because I'm this young kid. I was 16 when I got locked up and I'm locked up with adults. And even at 17, I'm sent to, um, you know, maximum security prison with adults because that's how New York State did it at that time. If you're 16 when you got locked up, you're an adult and you're going to men's prison. And so here I am sticking out quite obviously. And thankfully before the predators could get me, a lot of the guys with like a paternal instinct came and helped me out. And uh, 
you know, talk to me a lot about like, this isn't you, this isn't your life, you can do better. Yeah, so I, I was in prison, you know, with, with men, even at 16, 17 years old. Um, that's how New York State did it. You know, uh, I was housed with these guys who obviously I, I stuck out in a lot of them, you know, before the predators got me. Um, guys who kind of came at me with kind of a paternal instinct did. And, um, you know, were kind of sharing with me that like, this, this isn't you. You know, like when we're in prison and there's all this chaos and, you know, gang violence and drugs that I'm, I'm not into any of it. And, um, you know, but part of me was trying to fit in. And part of me was, oh, if you disrespect me, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. We're going to fight. I got no, I'm a bigger guy. You know, I got no problem. I'll fight. And, uh, but people weren't really coming at me like that. And so people were kind of like, oh, like you're not involved in this gang life. You're not involved in the chaos. This is not your lifestyle. This is not who you are. Like you can turn your life around. You're not serving a life sentence. You know, like so many people I was surrounded by were. And so with the help of my family believing me and even the people in prison who are trying to like tell me like, you've got to turn your life around. Eventually I was starting to like, you know, be open and um, starting to like seek out the therapy, even in prison, even though there's not a lot there, but to turn my life around and to, to believe in myself to, as one of my therapists and one book that I read said, you know, you can use your guilt and your shame instead of allowing it to be toxic and to, you know, destroy you to, you know, keep you down. You can use it to power you to push forward, to build yourself up better and to help not only yourself, but to help other people. You know, so I, I started to use that that guilt and shame to motivate me to do better. And I started to believe that I can never undo the pain that I've caused. I can never take that away from people, but I can help prevent others from feeling that pain. I can help prevent others from doing anything like what I did. Guilt and shame are emotions that I would be led to believe are pointed at the individual yourself. It's very inward, whereas sympathy, empathy, regret is more compassionate for those who you might have affected. Mm. At what point did you start feeling that external sense of emotion for the people that you had impacted on that day? Yeah, so uh, I mean, it was definitely, I think the two go hand in hand, where as I'm realizing just how badly I've tormented and terrorized people, and it's hitting me in waves as time goes on, that's when at first I was taking it inwards and hurting myself. But then I wanted to be, you know what, no, I, I can really connect with the pain I've caused others, I can feel that sense of, um, you know, I can start having that remorse, like you said, it's more outwards and imagining what my victims have gone through. And I can use that as a way to, okay, I can push forward and I, I can make sure that others don't do what I did. You know, um, I can connect with other people. And the more that I connected with other people, even in the prison around me, even as I started to have more of these open conversations with people who are willing to do it and to have more of these 
um, healthy conversations also with my family, with my friends, and even other community members who had reached out to me and wrote letters to me while I was in prison, you know, the more I was able to connect with other people, the more I was able to connect with myself as well. And I think that that was a powerful thing was this, this whole, you know, of being more in touch with everything. And after feeling disconnected and isolated so many times in my life, here I was feeling connected. Here I was, you know, being fully open and fully honest, talking about the sexual abuse, talking about how I felt pain and I wanted other people to feel pain. And I, I really started to feel better when I spoke it out loud. And I tell people that's, that's one of the most powerful things you can do is to, to share your truth you know, to speak up and to let them know, you know, let others know what's going on within you. And that's how we can make sure that other people can connect with you. Now, other people who may be thinking those same harmful thoughts know that they're not alone. And that other people who may be thinking about hurting themselves or others can know that, you know what, it doesn't have to go that way. You know, the lessons that I've learned, everything that I've gone through, I want other people who may be going down that dark path to learn from it, to realize that, no, I wish I could be talking to my 15 or 16 year old self and saying, no, here's what you have to do. You have to open up. You have to find somebody because not everybody's blessed to have a, a parent or a family member or a friend or a therapist that they can open up to, but you have to find somebody. And today with everything online, with all the social media, there are so many people out there who are willing to listen, you know, and we can connect and see that we're not alone, that if you feel like you're in a dark place, you're not gonna be there forever. So many people have been in that same dark place and they've come out the other side and are living a good life. You don't have to hurt yourself. You don't have to hurt others. You can learn how to cope with this. You can learn how to get through this. And there's other people willing to help you. John, your story really demonstrates the negative consequences of enacting on those thoughts, both consequential to yourself, but also consequential to society at large around you. Yeah. When I think about school shootings, I see it as one of the most heinous crimes that there is. It's always on the news. Even over here in the UK, we see the extent of those crimes that take place over in America uh, almost on an annual basis. And my heart breaks when I read those headlines. Given that your intentions were not to hurt anybody that day, but hurt yourself, at least from a physical standpoint. However, your crime is attempted murder and the an act of um, shooting in a school. How and how were you perceived because of that in prison by other inmates, given it was such a catastrophic crime? Yeah, so you know we hear and we know that a lot of times in prison, if you have a crime involving children, you know the other inmates are definitely coming for you. You know, um, however, with with my situation, it's not an adult that was targeting children. People realized I was a child who was harming other kids, you know, psychologically. And that's how a lot of people perceived it. You know, and I heard time and time again 
um, of either people basically saying that, well, thank God nobody was seriously injured or killed, you know, or um, shit. I mean, prison's a, a pretty messed up world. People were basically saying, well, you know, um, they, they thought that I was a, a person not to be messed with. They thought that I was willing to be a very violent individual and in a dark place because it wasn't an adult targeting children. It was me with my peers. Some people were even basically being like, oh, shit, you're willing to put in that work. You're willing to, to hurt anybody who fucks with you. And that's how some people in prison saw it. You know, prison's a fucked up world in many different ways. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I wasn't targeted. I wasn't seen um, and that same lights that some others were. I mean, if I had, you know, if it hadn't been just a teacher who was shot, maybe if one of uh, those students had been injured, then people would have perceived me differently. Um, but I, I wasn't really targeted in that way in prison. Whilst you were in prison, John, did you ever recount the moments on that day? Did you ever go through each scenario and see the emotions expressed on your peers and teachers' faces? Did it haunt you whilst you were in prison? Oh, yeah. No, it, it definitely... Um, you know, I, I don't really talk about it a whole lot because, you know... Um, I don't want people to think like, oh, well, you know, I'm talking as if um, I was harmed that day. But, you know, I, 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 you know, I was fucked up for a long time with reliving what I had done, reliving, seeing those people. You know, I honestly, I, I had an interview before you um, that I told you it was very emotional. And I think. I, talking with you, I apologize for part of me has been kind of trying to protect myself because it hurts recounting and it hurts being super open and connecting with that. And I apologize for not truly being vulnerable with you, but like, it fucking haunts me what I did. And it did for a long time where I had, let's say I had nightmares about what I had did. Not, I wasn't a victim. I relived it even in my fucking dreams for a long time, you know. Um, again, I'm not the victim, I'm the perpetrator. So I can't imagine what all those kids, with the students, with the staff, with their family members, what kind of nightmares they had, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it haunted me, it still does, you know. Um, but that's again why I try to do something positive so I can maybe that's just also something that I'm doing to to forgive myself I don't ask other people to forgive me I don't ask for redemption I'm not trying to get any of that from people I'm trying to prevent other tragedies I'm trying to get it so that nobody else has to see that to lose a family member you know, and um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm still, it's been 20 years almost, February only 20 years, and I'm still trying to come to terms with it myself to a degree, as I'm sure so many others are as well. And um, yeah, I mean, like even recently, I, I've, I've been on social media sharing my story for a little while. Um, you know, I've been on social media, spe specifically TikTok, for, you know, a year and a half, two years. 
And I, I originally, I talked a lot about just prison reform, criminal justice reform, mental health reform, homelessness, because I worked at a homeless shelter, um, you know, trying to do good in my community after I came home from prison. Um, but I mean, recently there's been a lot of outrage against me, not just for what I did, but for being on social media, for sharing with people. And the only reason why I share, the only reason why I'm outspoken and on your podcast and others is because, you know, so many people when I came home asked me and said, listen, we need you to speak out. And I said, no, I'm going to fucking hurt more people by speaking out. You know, like I, I used to help a little bit like behind the scenes where um, I would do like interviews with academics or, you know, things of that nature who were trying to understand how to prevent this. But people kept asking me to speak out. So I started and recently there's been so much outrage against me and I'm reevaluating everything that I'm doing and I'm reevaluating, am I, are the benefits outweighing the harm or am I just hurting more and more people? Am I actually helping? And I know I am helping to a certain degree, but it's kind of like, you have to look, you have to weigh it. You have to see which is, which is doing better. Do you understand um, why my why people might not be aligned to the idea of you having a platform or being platform. Do you understand where yeah, that no. might come from or sympathize? It's, it's definitely understandable. And, and I saw that from the very beginning um, that for some people, God forbid my victims are scrolling through TikTok or Instagram or something and suddenly my face appears. And then it's harmful for their family, their friends, my community. Um, for survivors of other school shootings, you know, um, and, uh, that's, yeah. And the fact that I've, I've actually accumulated so many followers is also harmful to a lot of 250,000 plus now. I have over 250,000 followers on TikTok and, you know, people don't support me for what I did for the terrible shooting. They support the fact that I've turned my life around and I'm trying to prevent things, but still so many other people see that and they say, well, you might be encouraging others to follow in your footsteps to gain that, you know, that celebrity status, which I hate that fucking word because I'm not famous. I'm infamous. There's a difference. I'm well known for something horrible. Like you said, one of the worst crimes you can commit is why people know me. That's the only reason they know my face, you know? Um, but again, it's, we have seen in America so many shootings, not just on an annual basis. It happens, you know, every month, you know, if not more often than that. And we've seen survivors speak out and ask for change and ask for help. And it doesn't happen. And sometimes the people who ignore survivors, they say, well, you don't know what leads somebody to do something like this. You don't know what would really prevent this from happening. So that's why I was convinced by people that I should speak out because I can say, I know what leads somebody to do something like this. I know what would help and what wouldn't help. And so I started to, to share and that's been my goal is not, you know, trying to get well known, not to accumulate likes and follows and all that bullshit. I just want for somebody to make a fucking change. 
so that nobody else loses their child, so that nobody goes down the path that I did, you know. Um, and I've been able to connect with a lot of people in a good way, though. I, I will say that um, I've had so many people open up and reach out to me about their own struggles. Uh, I've had people reach out to me about how they think about killing themselves. And sometimes watching my videos gives them hope. I'll be honest, I've even had people reach out to me and say, I've thought about shooting up my school, you know? And so that's why I do what I do is because I'm trying to get through to those people that you don't have to hurt yourself. You don't have to hurt others. There's another way, you know? And, and we can do so much to help people in their time of need. You know, um, I advocate a lot for for schools to talk not just about math, reading, history, science, but to talk more about people's emotions, how we can connect with ourselves, how we can connect with others, how we can communicate and raising not just awareness, but raising resources so that we have more therapists, counselors, and anybody who can help. And that's if they can get it in school for kids, great. If we can get it outside of schools so that it's not only available, but affordable. Because even if you say, I have problems, I need help. Therapy is not often covered by insurance in America and it can be very expensive. You know, uh, right now in my circumstance, um, you know, I'm paying $80 a week and that's by a therapist who's who's very generous, who could have, you know, who usually charges more. Um, but I, I I have to spend eighty dollars a week to go to therapy, you know. Um, and I think that's when people have, you know, all these struggles that's going on. And America claims to be one of the most richest countries in the world. You know, we're one of the greatest countries in the world. They say, well, why the fuck aren't we helping? prevent these terrible tragedies? Why don't we talk about suicide? Why don't we talk about the drug problems? Why are we ignoring all these things? When I was sharing um, that I had you coming on the podcast, I had a few people, uh, close friends who had consumed some of your content. And they said to me, one thing that they wanted to know was, they wanted to understand how much of your personal brand online is for character rehabilitation or or just common good to prevent these from happening. They asked, or they identified that you're going to have to integrate with the community again. So there would be, I guess, a rationale for you to rehab and reform your character so you can integrate back into the local area, go to the local shop, go to the bars, do what you love to do without your character being absolutely, you know, distraught or lambasted by your heinous crimes. My yeah. argument against them would be that that stuff never leaves you no matter how reformed you become you will always be known for doing that so i can't imagine your character will have been rehabilitated to the extent that they might have thought it would yeah um also people don't realize i came home from prison almost three years ago and although even the day i was released you know news um and media coverage talked about the fact that i was being released from prison People still only saw pictures and videos of me in court when I was a child. I look a lot different as a, you know, as a grown man than when I was a child. 
I'm anonymous when I walk around and go to the restaurants and go to the stores. People didn't know who I was, you know, so I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be on social media and, and trying to um, say, hey, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm different. No, I, I was anonymous. I literally the first job I had coming home from prison was in my hometown where somebody who knew who I was, but believed in me and believed in second chances and wanted to help me out, gave me a job. And I was interacting with a lot of people from the public. And some people did know who I was and said, like, oh, I'm glad you're home. But I'm sure a lot of people who probably would have hated the idea of interacting with me didn't even know who I was when they interacted with me, you know. Um, and still to this day, even with all the attention I get and everything like that, like when I'm in public, people don't recognize me. When I do get recognized, I have people say, you know, positive things about me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even with all the hate and everything that I get online in, in public, I don't really get any hate. So it's not like I'm trying to defend myself on social media so that my um, my real life, life, you know, interactions can be better. And that's why I was so intrigued to have you on the podcast. I don't personally believe if you had completed a crime like you have, I don't, I'm not led to believe that you would want to put yourself under a microscope in the public domain to be hated, to have people comment about your past, to make assumptions about your life. I can't imagine you would do that unless you wanted to do good or you wanted to spread awareness or at least spread a message. Because yeah. online and social media is a trepidatious place. It's it's full of trolls and anonymous accounts. And given that you're trying to believe in yourself, build confidence, allow yourself to believe that you're not your past, going online and reading those comments isn't the best way to do that. So I can imagine you have calculated the risk. Yeah. and thought, well, the benefits of me sharing my story hopefully outweigh the negative consequences of putting myself online. Yeah, as far as for like personal consequences and everything, I've always known from the beginning that I would get a lot of hate, um, a lot of anger directed towards me that most, you know, like you said, there's a lot of trolls and anonymous people who are willing to say horrible things. And um, I'm okay with that. Even right now with the backlash, a lot of very large creators on TikTok are talking out against me. And a lot of people are, um, are extremely angry and upset with me. You know, at the end of the day, like I didn't do this for people to like me. I didn't do this for, for people to forgive me. I'm not seeking redemption. Like I said, I'm literally here so that people can better understand me to better understand what led me down this path and so that we can make changes to prevent others from going down that same path. You know, if people want to send me comments and say, fuck you, I hope you die a terrible death. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, I get that all the time and it is what it is. I still hope that my message is getting through to those who need to hear it, whether it's parents, whether it's teachers, whether it's, kids themselves who are struggling, you know, or whether it's law enforcement. I do a lot of work interacting with law enforcement and trying to give them uh, an inside look into my mind, what led me to do what I did and how I believe we can prevent others from doing this as well, you know. Um, so that's my message is really not so much about me, 
as about what we can do for others. I just use me as an example because I have such an extreme story. Most people that I'll help were never on the path to do anything like I did. Most people that I'm trying to get through to are those who may be just suffering in silence. Who, Because the vast majority of people who suffer from mental illness are never going to hurt other people. They're never going to lash out. The vast majority of people who struggle do so in silence and they do so often with shame and without even letting other people know that they are struggling, you know, let alone they're, they're not going to commit a terrible crime like I did. So I'm hoping that the vast majority of the people who can get some benefit from, you know, what I talk about are the ones who may be just on that path, like I said, thinking about hurting themselves. Or maybe they're just people who are just miserable, depressed, and think that their life is never going to get better. And I'm just trying to do my best to say, like, no, your life can get better. And it's never too late. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to say, even if you have done something that you're not proud of, you can still change. You can still be a better person. And so many people who have been on your podcast, it's all about okay, turn your past into a learning lesson, either for yourself or for others. And you can still do great things. And I believe that for everybody. And, you know, that's, that's, how, I, that's how I look at my message at my uh, platform. It's not about me. It's about making sure other people understand that they can do better, that they don't have to give into the darkness. Through your first-hand experience, what are your recommended preventative measures to stop a high school shooting? Yeah, so I think that there's um, people ask, and especially, you know, in the United Kingdom, uh, is, is very different with the gun culture there. Um, people ask, is it guns or is it mental health? It, it's definitely both need to be addressed. Um, but I focus a lot on mental health because I think American gun culture is so rooted in our history. And I don't believe that people are willing to change that. But I do believe people would be willing to change how we view mental health. And if we can have our schools that are more focused on helping people on not just an academic, but on an emotional level. And if there already are so many teachers and administrators who are working with kids and helping them out and identifying what's going on within them and how they can help others. But that should be one of the key focuses. You know, that shouldn't be a choice of teachers and administrations. That should be a requirement. Um, because if we can help people on a deeper emotional level, like I said, we're, I'm not just trying to prevent school shootings. I'm trying to also prevent those who are suffering and may either lash out at themselves or end their own lives or, you know, turn to drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. Because most schools in America, although school shootings are a terrible thing to happen too often, most schools will never experience that. But every school will have a student that stays home and kills themselves. Every, every school will have a student that loses their life because they overdose on some type of drug. Every, every school experiences that, you know, cause that the drug epidemic, the suicide epidemic, that is prevalent, not just here, but you know, I'm sure in the United Kingdom, you guys struggle with a lot as well. 
So I think if, if we address these things, we can prevent so much, not just the terrible gun violence. Some might listen to your story of transformation and aging, I guess, and think to themselves, if John had that appetite at age 16 to complete such a heinous crime and to make such a scene for others to suffer around him, they might believe that you would be capable of having those thoughts again, or you can enact that again. How would you respond to people that would think that way? Yeah, I, I definitely get that. That's another issue that a lot of people are saying, why isn't this guy still in prison? He's obviously a, a danger to the public as a whole. And I, I get that. Um, but I think also a lot of people understand that our brain chemistry and how we are as people is very different when we're going through puberty in our adolescence. That I still struggle with depression today, but It's not as crazy out of whack as it was when I was a teenager. And again, I'm not blaming mental illness for what I did, but it played a large factor. And as we get older and things start to calm down and our brains become more fully developed, and I've also been able to learn a lot of coping strategies, and I do a lot of things to, you know, prevent myself from getting into the uh, darker places where I even think about hurting myself because I still get depressed. I still have days where I don't want to get out of bed, but I'm more um, in tune with that. I'm more in tune with also what helps and I'm more open to communicate with others because when I have those days, I let people know I'm struggling today. And I'm telling them that I'm saying, hey, I might, I'm not looking for, um, for you to do anything, but be mindful that I'm struggling today. And I'm open to doing that. I'm open to, I've gotten a lot into meditation has helped me. A lot of exercise has helped me, you know, um, prevent me from getting back into a very depressive state. And even, like I said, when I do get into that depressive state, you know, as a grown man, I'm now much more aware of how important communication with others is. Um, because again, just even saying things out loud makes a difference for me and for so many other people. That's why talk therapy can be so important or just having a friend, a family member, somebody to speak with. And that's the other thing that I address a lot of times is let's say if you're somebody who's not struggling, but you know, somebody who is, what can you do? Right. And just by being uh, available, you know, somebody that people can talk to, you know, you're not trying to give them advice. You're not trying to give them answers. You're just allowing somebody to talk to you and to be open without judgment and just listening to them share whatever's going on in their minds. That can make a huge difference. You know? I'm thinking of a moment in your life where you were able to give that level of understanding and empathy to people that you might have impacted and I'm led to think of the sword attack that you were a victim of uh, slightly after you left prison. Can Mm -hmm. we talk about that experience? What happened that day? Yeah. So, um, so again, after I'd left prison, I had had, you know, I'd had a job and it was good and everything, but, um, but eventually I was like, you know what, I, I want to do something with more meaning and purpose where I'm able to, to help people, uh, in the community, and to be that that positive force, like I've always thought about doing. 
And so, yeah, I went and I first started to volunteer at a local homeless shelter. And immediately, day one, they liked me and they were just kind of like, hey, we've got a position open if you're if you're up for it. I said, you know, like, yeah, definitely. You know, so I went through the process of um, they still wanted me to put in an application and uh, interviewing me and everything. But I started working at this homeless shelter and I loved it. I was able to be this force of good where I'm raising donations. I, I ran a clothing pantry and I was raising awareness you know, getting the items that people needed oftentimes, helping people out. Here's some, you know, clean t-shirts, underwear, socks, whatever you're looking for. And um, I was also able to just be somebody that people could talk to. You know, that wasn't a part of the job, but that's something that I enjoyed where sometimes people just wanted to come in and just talk to me and just talk about their their life. And it, it felt amazing. Um, but at the same time, I'm interacting with uh, with a population that often struggles with a lot of mental health issues. And um, so I've been working there for a while when um, when one man came in and he was very upset. He started to, to yell at one of my coworkers. And so me and some other coworkers, we heard it kind of stepped in um, and did our best to de-escalate the situation. But eventually he just started to then target me and be upset with me. And again, I'm used to it. Like you're interacting with people who have had very hard lives. If not, they're struggling with mental health or drug addiction. And I don't take it personal. So, but after a while, there's only so much, especially when he's doing it in front of everybody and he's making everybody else uncomfortable and feeling unsafe. Eventually it's kind of like, all right, we, we can't. You know, this guy just keeps going and going. Um, so we had to ask him to leave. And we didn't have security. We didn't have metal detectors. So after asking him to leave, he said, well, can I go and get my my property? You know, he had some stuff and we have lockers for people to put their stuff. So, yeah, sure. No problem. You know, you just, you know, you can finish up your lunch real quick because he came in at lunchtime. I was like, just, you know, finish up real quick. Just grab your stuff and come back tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, come back tomorrow with, with uh, a different mindset, hopefully. And sure enough, he, he went into the locker room and, yeah, he had uh, some small swords stashed away. And, um, yeah, so then he, he came at me. I was sitting down at a table with some coworkers and surrounded by people who were like up talking to us and hanging out. And, uh, and next thing I know, my, my boss had come down to, to make sure everything was okay as the guy was leaving. And my boss just screams out like, oh, you know, watch out. And I look up and next thing you know, I black out. I, I don't remember the very beginning of the attack. I remember watching him come at me uh, and seeing he had something in his hands. I remember I thought he had a pipe, uh, but no, it was, he had a sword. And uh, yeah, he came right for me. And, um, you know, I, I was able to get up and I was able to protect myself. And I used my, my left arm to, to kind of protect my head. And he almost cut off my, my left hand. Uh, and I got up and I ran away. Um, but, you know, like as I go to the stairs, because we were on a lower level, um, as I go to the stairs to go up to, to get to the exit, he catches up to me and he starts hitting me in the back and I fall and I start basically just kicking at him and fighting for my life. And he starts chopping away at my legs. 
and mm. you know I'm not going to go too in depth, but basically, you know, after a, a while of him just chopping away, I mean, he realized he as much damage as he was doing, I kept holding up my legs to protect the rest of me, you know, and I was higher up on the stairs. So he he turns around and he walks away. And now my coworkers, they're there. They've been yelling and screaming. And, and somebody had, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it for a while, but somebody had tried to like grab a broom and try to like hit him. Um, and we later on tried to like grab a knife, um, but it was, it was too much. Uh, but this guy, he went, he grabbed a second sword that he had stashed. So then he came back at me with two swords and my legs, I could no longer hold up that much, um, you know, and he starts to, to slash trying to aim for my head, which you can see, you know, he did end up hitting my neck and my face, um, you know, but thankfully it was with my, my arms held up. So it was more of like bouncing off of my arms first before it hit me. So it didn't do as much damage to, to my head. Um, but as you can see, you know, uh, he practically cut off my hands. My, my hands were for the most part cut off. Um, so it was my right leg. He cut through my kneecap um, and almost, you know, severed my, my right leg from the knee down. He almost cut off my left foot. And um, but yeah, but he after a while, he, you know, he couldn't get to my head as much as he wanted to. But he saw everything just falling apart in the rest of my body and thought that he had done enough to kill me and he left. And, um, yeah, thankfully like they, you know, first responders showed up a few minutes later, like my coworkers had gone and grabbed towels and were putting pressure on the wounds as much as they could, but they were just like screaming and crying and terrorized. Um, and yeah, so when the first responder showed up, I was still awake and, I have no idea how, you know, it's, I'd lost pretty much as much blood as you can before you die. And they put tourniquets on me to stop the bleeding. And thankfully we were literally like half a mile away from, from a major hospital. Um, so because the first responders put the tourniquets and because I got to the hospital, you know, that was literally right down the street, basically. Uh, my life was able to be saved and, um, you know, they, they reattached my hands as best they could. You know, I, I have to wear splints. I don't normally wear them a lot on camera, but my hands are hurting a lot lately. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I spent months in the hospital and a nursing home, but, um, you know, I'm healing and uh, I'm in therapy for it. And I tell people that, you know, I forgive my attacker. Um, because holding on to the anchor, I've been through that. I know what it's like to be angry and miserable and upset and mad at the world. And I don't want to be that person anymore. And I know that forgiveness is not saying that I have to, you know, accept that this person shouldn't be held accountable or say that he shouldn't, um, you know, be in prison. No, he is in prison. And forgiveness is just saying I'm letting go of that anger. You know, I, I, I really honestly hope that he's able to get his life on track. I fought to prevent him from getting a life sentence in prison. I believe that he's, he's in his early 40s. He had never been to prison before. So obviously he needs some help. The prison system doesn't really provide it, but I hope 
that they he's able to change somehow, some way. And um, I believe that I, you know, holding on to the anger would only hurt me. It's not going to hurt him. So, yeah, I, I believe that forgiveness can be very powerful, and I've now experienced that firsthand. Where, you know, now now I know what it's like to be the victim of a, a horrible, violent attack um, because of somebody who is struggling with their own problems, their own issues, and them lashing out. Thanks, John, for recounting that traumatic, graphic experience that you endured. Yeah. And in, in light of that, given that you forgive your attempted killer in that case, do you hope or expect the others in that classroom and those teachers and everyone in that high school to forgive you in the same way that you've forgiven your I, I don't ask for forgiveness. You know what I mean? I believe that's a very personal journey. Um, and I, you know, when I'm speaking out and trying to do what I'm doing now, it's not because I want forgiveness. I don't want that. Um, if they're able to do it, because you can forgive somebody without ever even telling that person that you forgive them, you know, um, because forgiveness is not about the person who did something wrong. It's not about benefiting them somehow. Um, you know, forgiveness is a personal journey. And if they are able to forgive me, you know, I, that's for their own, um, that's something that's very personal. I think that would be disrespectful because people also ask, well, have I spoken to like the teacher who I had shot um, or the vice principal who grabbed me or I don't reach out to anybody. I mean, legally, I'm not even allowed to right now uh, with, with, with them. Um, there's still orders of protection, but at the same time, I think that it would be extremely disrespectful on my end to reach out to them. If they ever wanted to reach out to me and to have a conversation with me, I'd be open to that, you know, but only if it's their choice, only if they are the ones reaching out. Uh, I think it can be more harmful um, for perpetrators to reach out and to try to initiate conversation with their victims even if they have the best of intentions, it's, it's not on you. It's on the victim to initiate that. Um, and I also understand that some people say, well, that's their problem with me being on social media is that what happens if they end up seeing me? And I, I definitely have struggled with that and have um, thought a lot about that. But, um, you know, I, I, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not looking for for forgiveness, man. I'm just I'm just trying to make the the best of a horrible situation where we can help others. You know, it's not just about transforming oneself, but then if you can help others as they are transforming themselves, you know. And I think that's what your podcast is about. You know, is about sharing stories so that not just saying like, "Hey, these guys did it," but these people did it, and so can you. Yeah. And that's what this podcast is all about, I think. And that's what, you know, my journey is somehow trying to find out how can I help others so that they don't become like me when I was 16. How can they realize that I turned my life around and so can you? That's exactly what this podcast is about. And it's exactly why I wanted to have you on, John. If one of the victims of the high school where to reach out to you to have an open dialogue, whether it was a teacher that you shot or whether it was the 
teacher that was hiding in the classroom or your classmates around you that witnessed this unfold. Do you know what you would say to them? Yeah, so I, I have had, um, like I said, I've always had some of my friends who have kept in touch with me. Um, but recently, especially with more, uh, the larger my social media presence grows, I have had um, other students um, who were there that day reach out to me and not, you know, not students who were there who saw me, but obviously everybody in the school was affected. I, I recently had a girl reach out to me or a woman reach out to me and was sharing how she was in the cafeteria on the other side of the school. They didn't know what was happening. They were just suddenly told we're going into lockdown you know, the cafeteria was in like this wide open space. So everybody had to go into the gym across the hall. And she remembers everybody thought it was a drill at first. And people were just kind of like, you know, upset that they were having their lunch interrupted for a drill. But then as they got into the gym, she said about how they had everybody sit down, you know, away from the doors. They turned off all the lights. And... You know, eventually uh, people start getting text messages and people realize it's not a drill. Uh, and she had a brother who uh, who's also at this school that day. And so she starts worrying about him because then everybody starts talking and, you know, even in the moment, even as they're sitting there in the dark in the gym, you know, people start talking, oh my God, are people dead? And they start, you know, the rumor mill starts up right then and there, and they start to think that several people had died and everybody's now worried. And she's telling me about how she was worried about her brother and so many of her friends. And this is what everybody starts thinking and processing in their minds. And so she shared that with me and you know, this was just last week. Uh, and uh, yeah, I basically just, you know, because she just reached out to me initially and just said, you know, um, like a regular conversation. And I, I said, yeah, no, I, I can't imagine what you went through that day. And that's when she shared that with me was all I could respond with is I'm sorry. And I know that my words have very little meaning and impact. I can't take away that pain that you went through, not just that day, but in the months and years to follow, because she shared with me about how she still struggles. Now she's a parent herself sending her kids into school and she's afraid of something like that happening at her kid's school. You know, and I'm basically just open to people sharing that pain with me um, because hopefully it makes her feel a little bit better to share that with me. You know, I, I've had... Yeah, another woman reached out to me sharing a very similar uh, experience from when she was in the school. And she did. She, she, you know, I, I don't really say a whole lot. I more allow them to speak. But yeah, this one woman, she, she reached out to me like a couple weeks afterwards. And she said, you know, it, it was just so good for me to be able to say that to you. And she's like, I went into therapy because I've been in therapy for so long on and off. And I, I told my therapists about how I spoke to you and, and they were just caught off guard. And, and I don't know. So, I mean, like, if that's what I can do, there's not much I can say, but I can listen and I can allow them to, to say, 
everything that they want to say, to share everything that they want to hear. I can just be there to listen. Thanks for passing that on to me, John. Yeah. To to end this podcast, I just want to say that I hope that the people involved on that day have been on a journey of healing and have had the support required to overcome or at least get towards overcoming that that day and those events. I'm really glad that you came on the podcast, John, to share the transformation that you've been on, but also your wider message and prevented and preventing uh an event like this unfolding again. I am glad that you're using your platform to share your story, whether it's been met with backlash or not. I am glad that you're doing that. I think transparency is very, very important. I think we can learn from everybody's story, both positively and negatively, bad stories and good stories. I think all stories have lessons and I'm glad that you came on this podcast to share yours. John, if I were to ask you what's next for you in terms of sharing your message and providing preventative measures or advice for um, negating another school shooting. What can we expect from you next? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really reevaluating everything, uh, you know, after a lot of the, everything that's going on towards me, because um, I, I get it, you know, and I, I want to, I want to be helpful, but do so in a way that minimizes um future pain that I am causing by speaking out. Um, but I know law enforcement is still very interested in talking with me. Um, so I'm going to continue speaking with law enforcement because they are engaging, they're interacting with kids, you know, who may be struggling and helping prevent these things from happening. And I share the same thing with them that I share with everybody else is, you know, if when we're interacting with, you know, not just somebody who's struggling, but if we're more open and letting people know of our own struggles, because you can make a deep impact on somebody just by sharing your own struggles, sometimes the things that you've overcome. And I tell that for teachers, for parents, for even law enforcement is the more that we can get these kids to realize that you might be struggling, you might be on a, a dark place in your life, but so many of us have been through it and you can make it through it as well. And if we can help them realize that and open up and say like, you know, cause a lot of times we, we want to have this distance. No, I'm an adult, you know, they're a child. No, sometimes, especially when you're 13, 14 years old, you're at that crossroads of, you know, you're dealing with more mature issues, but people still treat you as a kid. And sometimes we got to realize that now these kids, you know, I was, and so many of your other guests were, going through a lot of crazy things at, you know, 13, 14 years old, 15 years old. So if we can open up to them and help them realize like, you know, your life is not defined by what you're going through right now. You can have a better life and letting them know that you've been through it or that other people have been through it and having them feel comfortable to open up and to share what they're feeling, what they're experiencing and what they're worried about. That's how we can make a difference. That's how we can prevent things from happening. Not just the terrible shootings that we see here in America in the schools, but all the people who are suffering alone and will never lash out and hurt others, but they'll lash out and hurt themselves. We want to prevent that as well. John Romano, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into that episode with John Romano. I understand it was really sensitive in nature 
gory at times and quite emotional. Thanks for sticking to the end. Please, please, please do send me feedback at Development by David on all platforms. And I'll see you in the next one. Thank you.